The following sermon was preached on July 4th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Good Fight on 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, have you ever tried to get air out of a glass? Ever thought about that? That glass is full of air. How are you going to get it out? Can you put it up your mouth? Can you suck all the air out of that glass? No. You know how you get it out? You pour water into the glass until it flows over the top. Because there is a fairly scientific rule that uh, nature abhors a vacuum. And what that means is that any space that is empty is going to be filled, and whatever fills it will empty it of whatever is in there. Uh, let's think about the Bible story that Jesus gives us about the man who was possessed with a demon, and the demon leaves. He's cast out. He wanders around for a while, and he says, you know, this is not too good. I think I go back to that house, that person where I was. When he goes back, he finds the house is all cleaned up inside. It's been swept and cleaned and decorated. And so, oh, this is great. So he goes and gets seven worse than himself and comes back and indwells the man. You see, when the demon left, spiritually, there was nothing to replace his presence. And so what happens? Evil is worse. That is what fills the vacuum in our lives spiritually. We either will be filled with lust and sin, or that lust and sin will be replaced with virtue and righteousness. The Apostle Paul teaches this with his principles of you put off by putting on. And so just as we develop good habits, by getting rid of bad habits, but replacing the bad habits with good habits, so that spiritually the apostle will say, quit lying and tell the truth. He doesn't just say quit lying. If you quit lying, what's going to take its place? He says, don't steal. But then somebody say, don't steal. No, begin to work. And that is a very important biblical principle that you put off by putting on. That's the principle the apostle Paul is laying out for us here in 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 and 12. Let me remind you where we are uh, in this last chapter. In the first three verses, uh, Paul is wrapping up uh, instructions for how we live within a congregation. And in verse 3, he begins to uh, uh, give final words to Timothy as the evangelist pastor there in the church in Ephesus. And uh, he first warned him against false teachers. And one of the things he exposed about false teachers is that they taught for profit. Their God was, was money and treasure and fame and, and power. And, and so they, they thought that, that godliness uh, was profitable. And by godliness, they meant, uh, they meant religion. But Paul plays off of that after he rebukes them. And he, the text we had last week, he does tell us that, well, godliness is profitable. Uh, for all things accompanied with contentment. So last week we looked at uh, uh, contentment and the contrast of covetousness and lust. 
and the importance of, or the danger of lust in our lives and the importance of getting rid of it. Well, that's where he comes now in verse 11. All right, how are you going to deal with this lust, uh, this, this covetousness, this greed, this lack of contentment, this complaining and bitterness in your life? Well, Paul tells us that we put off by putting on. And so what we see here in these two verses, keeping in mind that Paul is talking now to the minister, that with gospel confidence, the minister has set a pattern for the congregation of getting rid of lust, pursuing virtue, by pursuing virtue and earnestly contending for the faith. With a gospel confidence, the minister sets a pattern for the congregation to flee lust, to pursue virtue, and contend for the faith. So we'll consider these three things. Responsibility to flee lust, responsibility to pursue virtue, responsibility to contend for the faith. So in uh, the first half of verse 11, if you'll just look at the very first verse, half of the first verse, but flee from these things, you man of God, we're instructed here to flee lust. These things uh, to which Paul refers are the things that he's just mentioned. Now, it can also be the false teaching and whatever, but in the particular immediate context, the things that Paul is saying is lust, covetousness, the downward spiral of sin. Now, you'll notice that he is addressing the minister. He addresses Timothy as, O man of God. This is a phrase that was used in the Old Testament for the prophets of old. And Paul uses it twice in the pastoral epistles, to refer to the ministers of the gospel here. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, a section, a verse that you know well, that all scriptures give them inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that what? The man of God may be adequate, equipped for all good works. Now, obviously, what's good for the man of God is good for the people of God as well. But we want to keep in mind that that promise in 2 Timothy 3, this instruction in 1 Timothy 6, is addressed to the office bearers of the church. But we've already seen from the apostle that as office bearers in the church, we then are to model for the rest. So we saw in chapter 4, verse 12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example for those who believe. Another physical law is that water rises to its own level. When we were back looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, you remember I said that a congregation ordinarily will never surpass spiritually the spirituality of its spiritual leaders. That's why we're to be able to say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. Not sinlessly, but in humility, with striving after holiness and having a, a balanced holiness in our lives. Now, I must be doing... Joe must be doing, Zach must be doing, what Paul tells Timothy to do, but you too must do this. For we are to be doing this as a way, as an encouragement, and a set of pattern for you to flee lust. Now children, what does the idea of flee, flight, bring to mind? Something dangerous. If there's a snake, a copperhead in the yard, what do you do? What you better do. You run away from it because you are afraid of it. Now, you girls, if there's a roach in the house, you also might screech and run away from it because you're afraid of it. But the idea of fleeing, of flight, entails danger. 
we flee those things that we think will harm us. And here, Paul's talking now about spiritual danger. He's talking about our lust, particularly that troika of lust at the center of all of our being that the Apostle John describes, the lust of the flesh, our appetites, the lust of the eyes, that covetousness and, and uh, adultery and whatever, and the boastful pride of life, the arrogance that marks our lives. You see, those are the three springheads, the, the, the filthy sewer of our hearts, out of which every single sinful word and action occur. And so Paul is teaching us by the Holy Spirit that it's in the core of our being. What Jesus will say in, in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into the mouth that in, ends up in the sewer. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles. And he says you've got to flee those things that are in the heart. But how do you do that? How can you flee something that's inside you? Well, the Bible tells us to do so, so we must be able to to do it. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. In the first place, we flee it by putting it to death. How did Joseph flee? Now remember, he was 17 years old. This beautiful woman is trying to, is making advances to him. He did the only smart thing that a 17-year-old would do. He ran away. He fled the opportunity. He fled the circumstances. He fled the person. And that's where fleeing lust begins. It begins by starving them, removing any possible occasion of them. That's why it's so important that you and I know our particular lust, our particular besetting sins, so that we will avoid places, people, circumstances, idleness, whatever it is. We must put those things away. When we lived in Houston, there was a, a young crack addict who made a profession of faith as I worked with him in the church. And as we, we tried to help him uh, put off his addiction. We tried to create accountability. Uh, if a crack addict's got money in his pocket, he buys crack. We tried to manage his income for him. And we, we instructed him to stay away from the old places. He didn't stay away from the old places. He got back on crack. You see... We have to kill it. That's how you flee it. You kill it. You put it to death. You make no occasion or opportunity for lust in your life. And it's a daily, rigorous, Holy Spirit-dependent, prayerful activity to flee lust. And so we kill it. We mortify it. That's part of what mortification is, as we saw last week. And then secondly, we fill our minds with good, holy, and righteous things. As Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, and 9, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellent, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Here's the putting off by putting on. And so we don't allow our minds to wander in the fields of lustful fantasy, uh, telling ourselves, well, you know, it's just thoughts. I don't talk that way. I don't act that way. I think, and it's a very sobering thing, and I've talked to a number of biblical counselors about this, 
We've all seen the phenomenon when a godly person has dementia or Alzheimer's, the things that begin to come out of their mouths. Sometimes it's sexual things, sometimes it's just anger. Now what's going on there? Well, one thing that's going on is they did not fill their mind with good things. They could, when the mind was strong, the mind can conceal the thoughts. And we can go through life and, and uh, not sin outwardly, but we've sinned with our minds. And I'm not saying every case this is, this is, I'm not judging anybody, but I'm telling you, it sobers me. Because you're going to know a lot about my inward thoughts if I ever have Alzheimer's. And I want to think on things that are good and honorable and pure. I want to fill my mind with, with the beauty of God and the beauty of His creation and things that are noble. And, and that's, that's what we must do in order to kill our lust. And so we are to flee lust. Well, the bigger picture then of putting off by putting on is the next commandment, and as we are to pursue, he gives us six virtues that we are to pursue in the second half of verse 11. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. The word pursue uh, in Greek is exactly the same word as to persecute. And what does a persecutor do? He pursues those that he wants to hurt and harm and destroy with all of his might and strength. What was, the, what was Saul of Tarsus doing persecuting the church, going from city to city, uh, all the way up to Damascus in order to grab Christians and to throw them uh, in, in prison? He, he, he spared himself nothing in that task. That's the word. The best way I can think of it is we must run hard after these virtues. You must run hard after these virtues. If you want to put to death lust, then run hard. Now, he mentions six things, and I want you to think of them in terms of three pairs. The foundational virtues, the animating virtues, and what I call the anti-hostility virtues. So the first two are the foundational virtues. Pursue hard, run hard after righteousness and godliness. When they're put in a pair like this, righteousness refers primarily to our actions according to the law of God. That we are pursuing a lifestyle that reflects uh, the Ten Commandments of God in their depth and their breadth. And as Paul focuses in his writings on the law, as we saw a number of months ago, he is thinking primarily about the second table, because that is how righteousness can really be seen. And that is, do we love our neighbor? How do we treat one another? Are we behaving righteously according to God's law in all of our relationships? Now, with that second table of the law, we have then, we are to pursue godliness, and that is piety, a godlike conformity, communion with God, delight in God, conforming to the image of God. And that is particularly reflected in the first four commandments that we take God as our God, we cling to Him, we love Him, we serve Him. Our lives are ordered by His word, as is our worship. Our hearts develop in reverence and piety. And we love and honor his day and use it for his glory and our well-being. Now, that's, 
these two things are foundational because they bring us right back to God and to His holy revelation. So all virtue, it's not what I think is virtuous, not what you think is virtuous. All virtue must flow out of the law of God. Pursue righteousness and godliness. Now the next two I'm calling the animating principles of virtue. Pursue faith and love. You think how often Paul includes these two in his list. This is the previous list we read there in, in chapter 4. Faith, of course, is that act of the soul by which we take hold of God and the principles uh, by which we then live and serve God according to His Word. It is the animating principle which we come into union with Christ and we live in Christ for justification, adoption, and sanctification. Sometimes when you and I think of faith, we think too narrowly simply of saving faith. Let me remind you of what our confession says in chapter 14. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word for the authority of God Himself speaking therein. And the Christian acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains. Yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. So you see, when we talk about faith being the animating principle, yes, it's what brings us to Christ, but it is the principle by which we live in response to the light of God's word, the commandments, the threats, the promises, whatever, so that we are seeking to live by faith, the animating principle. We also know from Scripture, and this is why they're put together, that, that faith is not barren. Just as our standards say that although justification is by faith alone, faith is never alone. I've compared faith, and people laugh at me, but a faith is like a female rabbit. Faith just produces all kinds of bunnies. And the most important way that faith manifests itself is in love. As Paul's dealing with the importance of faith in Galatians, he says, For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. If faith's not working through love, it's not real faith. Now, love does not receive Christ. Love does not in any way bring us into justification. But if we have true justifying faith, it's only going to act in one way, and that's love. Love for God, love for neighbor. Remember what we saw back in chapter 1, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. That love is responding to the God who has saved us by loving Him and loving His law, loving one another. You know, it's easy even to have the rudiments of faith and righteousness and godliness and be a mess. Isn't that what Paul says to the church at Ephesus? Man, they were great. Give my right arm for a congregation like that. They had everything except the most important thing, the animating principle. They didn't have love. They lost the first love. They went through all the orthodox, even pious motions, but the heart was not beating with love for God. So we must pursue godliness, 
righteousness and godliness, we must pursue them by faith and love. And then what I call the anti-hostility virtues. We also must pursue perseverance and gentleness, or as some Bibles translate it, steadfastness. Others, patience, but patience is way too pale. Perseverance, endurance, and gentleness. Now you can see why I call these the anti, I hope you can, the anti-hostility virtues. Because what Paul is so realistically reminding us here is that if you really pursue, you go hard after righteousness, godliness, by faith and love, you are going to be a counterculture person and you're going to be hated by many people around you. You will be persecuted. You will be harried. You will be slandered. You will be deprived. It could come a day that you will have here what they have in other countries. And the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to his people is that we then must persevere. We must endure. Twice he says in the Gospel of Matthew that you enter into heaven by endurance. If you do not endure, you're not going to get there. That's why our confession talks about the perseverance of the saints. It's much better than saying once saved, always saved. That's true, but the way that that's truncated today, no, if you have been saved by God, you're going to persevere. He gives the grace. It's never of us, but we will persevere. We will endure because he gives the grace. And as we seek to live for him, we then, regardless of response to us, regardless of attacks on us, regardless of any failure of success, we must press on, and as he'll say in a moment, contend for the faith. But you know, you can get real hardened if you're having to persevere, if you're constantly pushing back against error and wickedness. You're being attacked and, and slandered. And that's why he adds this second thing with it. Gentleness. Gentleness. You see, perseverance can actually make us hard if we don't do it in a balanced way, resting in Christ. Remember these marks of the uh, elder in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, that uh, we are not to be pugnacious, but gentle and peaceable. Gentleness, this, this kindness, this turning of the cheek, uh, forbearance, and not responding in kind and not letting the heart become embittered by what is going on around us. This is how we must behave in this pursuit hard after um, the virtues that God has uh, set, uh, set before us. So how, how do we pursue virtue? Well, in one way, it's very similar to that which we said about how we flee lust. We fill our mind with godliness, again, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. But particularly think of dwelling on the law of God. So, um, we're tempted to lust. We then dwell on the righteousness of the 10th commandment. We're tempted to idolatry. We dwell on the commandment of the first commandment, that we have God alone as our God. We're tempted to fear and despair. We dwell on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is our keeper. 
And he said, as he cares for the birds and the flowers, he's going to care for us. We love the world. We dwell on the love we have for God and for the brethren. We begin to get embittered under our persecution. We dwell on the gentleness of God himself. Uh, Psalm 18.35, by his gentleness, God makes us great. It's by his gentleness, this holy God. It's by his gentleness, something that we as fathers must always keep in mind is we would have to uh, discipline um, our children. Uh, that Calvin reflects that in that wonderful hymn, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. The other way that we then pursue righteousness, the virtues, is through the means of grace. To make careful use of the private means of grace, to have you know, the disciplines in our lives of daily uh, being in the word with meditation and prayer and communion with God. Uh, family worship, uh, Christian conversation and fellowship, and particularly public worship, which God teaches us is the most important way that he works in our lives to help us flee lust and pursue the virtues of God's holiness. And the Lord's Day, with its corporate worship, with its other pleasures and activities, are the ways that we die to sin and grow and righteousness, particularly then in the preaching, and of course, in the Lord's Supper. Today, as we come to the Lord's table, I want you to have in mind this commandment, to flee lust and pursue these virtues. And as you come to the Lord's table, come confident that Christ is going to feed you and strengthen you and lay some of these things out before Him, against which you wrestle. Ask Him, to kill them. Ask Him to grow love in your heart for Him and, and for His truth. Come intentionally to the Lord's Supper. Take hold of Christ in that way, and He will grant that which you've asked because He's promised. So we flee lust, we pursue virtue, and then it sounds a bit strange, but we are to contend for the faith. Now, you see, it really fits because if you're pursuing virtue, you're going to love God and His truth. And when you meet error, not only are you have to respond to it in perseverance, but you have to stand for truth. And so, verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, Earlier, Paul had told Timothy to uh, fight the good faith. Um, but back there in chapter 1, verse 18, he used the military term. Uh, and again, he used both the verb and the noun. So fight the good fight, soldier the good soldier. Uh, here he uses a different term. Uh, it's the term used for an athlete in training who goes through rigorous, painful repetition in order uh, to achieve certain goals. Um, they both have in, in view the same thing, and that is difficulty. I think in Paul's use here, and he also uses it in 1 Timothy, uh, or 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith, that fighting is probably a better concept here than merely uh, the, the athlete 
Um, he will use that term, for example, in, in 2 Timothy 2. But, but here, I think that fighting is the best way to translate this. And again, it's the same way. You've got the verb, the commandment, fight. And then you've got the noun, good, or fight, described by the adjective and the preposition. So fight, the good fight of faith. The fight is good because it is honorable and God-pleasing, and it is for the things that are true. That's why it's called the good fight of the faith. Not so much now talking about your personal faith, but the faith that's been delivered to us in the gospel of God. The faith that's been handed down in the scriptures. The faith that is summarized in our own doctrinal standards. And so Paul is telling us here that we, in fact, this is a way that you put off lust when we focus our attention on God and then on the beauty and glory of God's truth so that we're willing to contend for it. It's a very important thing in Scripture that we contend for the truth of God's Word. Jude, as he begins his letter, it's almost it's kind of a, a second thought to him. Uh, he said, uh, while making every effort to write to you about our common salvation... I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And then he, he goes in great detail and deals with the false teachers and, and all that is happening. It's in that context he says that, that we are to contend earnestly for the faith. Paul says here we're to fight the good fight for the faith. For the truth of God is being opposed by the world both the truth of doctrine and the truth of ethics. The truth of God is being opposed in the church, the truth of doctrine, the truth of ethics. We find ourselves an ever-decreasing segment, not only of the civic population, but the church or ecclesiastical population. And it's in this midst of error, doctrinal and ethical error, of which you are well aware, you just have to listen to the news or look at a paper or on the internet. Um, my wife just told me that this morning that California now has outlawed paying for any state employees to travel to any states that have taken strong stands against the LGBT movement. And that's not going to stop in California, my friends. If, if God gives us over to what they want to do in Congress, it'll happen to all of us. Zach tells me that Columbia, South Carolina has passed a law that a counselor cannot counsel uh, an underage child, a teenager, to uh, 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 the dangers of, of transgenderism. But we have to stand, you see. Error is it's like that dark cloud and wrinkle of time, and it's just come closer and closer and smothering. And it's in this context that this is all the more important in our day. Now, we don't do so foolishly. We don't take stands where stand is not necessarily called for. Um, but when we must not, we must never deny Christ or the truth. We must never allow someone to think that we would concur in their wickedness. But that's difficult, isn't it, to contend for the faith? And this is why I said that we're to do so with a gospel confidence. It's difficult to put these two commandments together. The first one, fight the good fights in the present tense. So this is this is the lifelong duty and activity of the Christian life. But the second one, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, 
Well, that is a past tense commandment. It's very difficult quite to get a handle on it, but I think that what, what Paul is saying here is that you have, if you're in Christ, you have taken hold of eternal life. It was a one-time activity. You come to Christ as the one-time activity, but you see, eternal life is not just something in the future. We now have and are taking hold of eternal life. We are living by the supernatural power of God. That's why he adds this uh, uh, word of, of sovereign grace, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. When this word called is put in the past tense, it's almost always referring to the God's sovereign effectual calling. The way you and I took hold of eternal life is because the Spirit worked in us. We heard God. He drew us unto himself uh, effectually by his sovereign grace, and we have entered into eternal life. So what he says is keep living by that which you've taken hold of supernaturally, which is the reality of eternity now in our lives, not just when we die. There in Christ is everything that you and I need to contend for the faith, to flee lust, to pursue these godly virtues. And the gospel is enforced then with this little, and it, it just kind of hangs there grammatically, uh, this gives the word and, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So there's a confession that Paul refers to here that was made in terms of being called, taking hold of eternal life. And I agree with those that say this is our baptismal confession. Now, it also could be Timothy's ordination confession, because everything else is true about it. That also was taken in the presence of many witnesses. It was a confession an obligation to do the very things that Paul... But I think it's broader here. Because almost always when this term confession is used, it has to do with our confession of faith. Romans 10.9 But if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. So for those of us that made a profession of faith later in life, coming not out of a covenant home, um, before many witnesses... We made this public statement. We take Christ as our Savior, God as our King. The Spirit is our sanctifier. And we've, we are obligated by that, you see? And that's part of the beauty of public confessions. Because it makes you stop and think about, I, I said this in front of many other people. You're tempted to back off or fall away. No, I said this. It would be true of ordination in wouldn't it as well. But then children, you didn't make the profession at your baptism. But one day, Lord willing, for some of you very soon, you're going to stand and make this confession in the presence of many witnesses. You must do that. God has made covenant promises to you. God has brought you into His covenant. But you must now make covenant with God. And the final covenanting act that you must make with God is to take these vows. That's what a covenant is. You vow to take God as your God. And so one day you too will get to make this confession in the presence of many witnesses. And, and that confession with your baptism, whether it was as an infant and you always think about it or as an adult, should always then be a reminder to you that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. I can remember early on being, and you remember this too, you're first married and, and you know, being married is, you forget in a sense you're married. 
And that's what this little ring is. Man, my, my thumb would get down on that ring. I'm married. I'm married. And your public confession and your baptism, whether it was an infant or as a professor's baptism, tells you, I'm married. I'm married to Christ. He's my Lord and my Savior. And you see how it all kind of comes together now so that it's with this gospel confidence that the minister will set the pattern for the people of fleeing lust, pursuing righteousness while contending for the faith. This is our calling, my friends. It's my calling. As I said, it's Joe's calling. It will be Zach's calling soon. Any, as we have elders and deacons in our church, it will, it will be their calling. But you know, you fathers, it's your calling. Just as the minister and the office bearer is to model for the flock, the father is to model for the family. We must lead the family in fleeing lust, pursuing virtue, contending for the faith in our public covenant with God. And of course, at the end of the day, this is God's calling for each one of you, all of you, daily, to um, do this with the confidence that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. But we have that word pursue, pursue that sanctification, without which no one shall see the Lord. If sanctification, my friend, today is not a mark in your life, then it means you're not converted. Or you can be well aware of your sin, as I am of mine, but there must be a pattern of growth, a pattern of putting off and putting on. And the problem might be that you've never taken hold of Christ for eternal life. Without all the static in your life, all of the confusion, all the love affair with your lust and your sins, God says you must repent. You must repent of all of that. You must take hold of Christ as He's offered in the gospel. Until you do that, you'll be under God's wrath, this holy God of whom we thought a great deal today. But as soon as you do that, then you're covered in the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And rather than under the wrath of a holy God, you will be forever in His love and favor. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.